Welcome to Full Scope, a weekly medical podcast designed to teach, inspire, and encourage listeners to question everything they know. I'm your host, Bill Brandenburg. Welcome back to Ketamine. This is part two. Thanks for joining us. We've got a lot to talk about today, including the clinical uses of ketamine, what it actually is used for in clinics and hospitals, etc. We're also going to talk about the clinical effects of ketamine, what it actually does to the body, to your vital signs, your heart, your lungs, your brain. Then we're going to talk about toxicity. What things can go wrong with larger amounts of ketamine? Why people fear it? And then finally, we're going to discuss a little bit about how you can treat those adverse effects of ketamine. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I really enjoyed taking a deep dive into this subject. It's one of my favorite things. Ketamine is one of my favorite drugs to use in the hospital because it's one of those things that has an immediate effect. When I put somebody on a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor for depression, I have to tell them to wait a few weeks because that's how long it often takes to even get a modest effect. Sometimes I wonder if there's any effect at all. This is not the case with ketamine. When you give somebody a dose of ketamine, you know something is in their system right away. So let's circle back and talk a little bit about recreational ketamine. We kind of finished with that, but it was a a little bit quick. So I want to talk about ketamine in the non-clinical setting and, and particularly some of the toxicities that I worry about. And the biggest thing that I worry about in the the non-clinical use of ketamine is not even the ketamine. It's the fact that so often ketamine is co-ingested or co-administered or taken with other illicit substances. It's very common to see NMDA used with ketamine, to see nicotine used with ketamine, alcohol, methamphetamine, heroin, and even cocaine. Now, if you're familiar with toxicology, you know that a lot of these drugs, namely methamphetamines and cocaine, are much, much more dangerous. Because you see these uh, toxicological cases who have multiple toxins on board, sometimes it can give some of these, these compounds kind of a bad name or a bad rap. I, I throw in other compounds like LSD and... and um, psilocybin in this in this batch so many of the fatalities and and tox and fatalities related to toxicity are probably due to other substances and for that reason it, it oftentimes makes these drugs look more dangerous from a toxicological standpoint than they actually are don't get me wrong the profound mental and um somatosensory effects ketamine has can be so powerful that they can make people do stupid, dangerous stuff. They can be very dangerous in that sense. If you are using ketamine and driving a car, bad deal. Keep that stuff in mind. There's a concept in toxicology called the LD50. And what that means is the lethal dose, the LD lethal dose, that causes 50% of an animal model to die when they get a certain drug. It's a way to know or to kind of approximate 
how high of a dose tends to be lethal. This doesn't always carry over to humans uh, perfectly or even well sometimes, but it does give us a little bit of an indication. In the LT50 for ketamine in mice was 600 milligrams per kilogram. That's 600. Now, in clinical use with ketamine for low doses, I'm generally giving somebody an intramuscular dose, something along the lines of 0.5 milligrams per kilogram for depression. For anesthesia, you're giving somebody a dose of maybe 10 milligrams per kilogram intramuscular or 2 milligrams per kilogram IV for your induction of, of anesthesia. And so what that means is that in the clinical setting, the doses we are using are way, way below the LD50 for ketamine. That doesn't mean it's necessarily safe, but that does just give you an indication of, of how much ketamine uh, it may take to actually kill a mice for sure, a mouse for sure, but uh, but a human kind of by proxy. So that's kind of interesting, and I want to kind of use that to take us right into the clinical setting. What is ketamine actually used for? And to me, there's really about five main uses for ketamine. There's probably so many more, and I'll throw out some of the ancillary uses, but, but to start, let's just break ketamine up into low dose, which is also known as sub-dissociative, and higher dose, which is dissociative doses. What does that mean? Like we said in step one, as you increase the dose of ketamine, you start to get separation between your somatosensory cortex, meaning the part of your body that perceives senses, and the rest of your brain. So you essentially dissociate. Your brain leaves your body in that sense. At lower doses, ketamine can be used for a number of things, and it tends to be very effective for these things. The first thing is a whole bag full of mental health disorders. Ketamine has been studied in small studies, even randomized controlled trials, for things like major depression, things like obsessive compulsive disorder. Even suicidal ideation can be rapidly turned around with the administration of a, d a single dose of ketamine. From a mental health standpoint, ketamine is just fascinating to me. And I'll tell you, it works. I do this to people in the hospital that are really down. Anytime I get somebody that's acutely suicidal that I admit to the hospital, I give them a dose of ketamine. In my outpatient clinic, Wonder Medicine, that's one of our bread and butter things that we do is we treat depression in the outpatient setting with low doses of ketamine. And it works. It works really well. It does kind of elicit just a generalized euphoria which I think is important. But I think it does something else as well. And that is, it improves neuroplasticity and allows us to kind of remove ourselves from ourselves and our general thought patterns. What does that do to a depressed person? Well, I think about depression in a number of different ways, but one of the hallmarks is being caught in these negative thought patterns. 
feeling down, feeling tired, feeling sad, negative self-talk, negative thoughts, a cycle of those thoughts kind of perpetually driving each other. When someone gets a dose of ketamine, I think it breaks that negative thought cycle. And when a depressed person gets a chance to leave that toxic cycle, even for a minute, that can do amazing things for their mental health. For just a second, they can come to the reality that maybe things aren't as bad as they are. Maybe they don't have to feel as down as they do. And when you mix that with some euphoria, people just kind of get this happy feeling. And I will tell you that it tends to last. I definitely think that it's pretty active for at least a week in one in, in people, even after just one dose. But I even see people tell me that the symptoms continue for up to a month following just one dose of ketamine. And I think it just opens up a golden opportunity for therapy. This is a great time to rework some of those neuronal pathways. And over that couple weeks, while people are not so down and not so in the dumps, they can really start to realize real mental change. It works in a number of mental health disorders. It helps with anxiety. It helps with depression, OCD, suicidal ideation. And I've got studies all referenced below um, that show this. They're all small, randomized, controlled trials. We're talking, you know, 20 to 80 patients. These aren't huge, but the effect size is real. And I think it's really cool, and I think it's worth um, continuing to look into and continuing to use. And I know that I have, have made this a big part of my clinical practice, and I encourage others to learn more about it and think about adding it to their clinical practice as well. Another big use for ketamine is pain. Even at low doses, ketamine blocks pain. This is probably through a number of mechanisms, namely NMDA antagonism, but you really need to think about using ketamine as part of a multimodal pain management strategy. Meaning, hit a bunch of different targets, get some synergy, and do a really good job at treating pain. So, maybe get something on board for COX. You know, your NSAIDs, acetaminophen. Maybe get, maybe get a GABA agent on board, gabapentin. Maybe get a mu opioid on board, you know, one of the n number of opiates. Add on ketamine, your NMDA antagonist. For central pain, think about, you know, antidepressants like an SNRI or tricyclic antidepressant. Using a multimodal pain approach is better than just slugging people with more and more opiates. And in fact, the ability of ketamine to reduce the amount of opiates used, and even reverse clinical dependence on opiates is fairly profound. I have had a number of patients that we just escalate and escalate doses of morphine, hydromorphone, and they're just not getting their pain treated. I put them on a low fixed dose ketamine, let's say 0.2 milligrams per kilogram per hour, and it's amazing sometimes. You'll see You'll see nurses go from having to administer morphine every two hours to doing one dose an entire 24-hour period, or maybe none. The change is profound. And this pain strategy works both in the acute setting, 
So you see it all the time in the emergency department. People come in with acute pain, they get some ketamine, it gets a lot better. But it's also used in the chronic pain setting as well. And there's research and, and all kinds of things related to the mechanism of chronic pain use. And there's some evidence that it can kind of rebuild or heal heal neurons uh, to the point where people's chronic pain kind of reverses or stops. I will say that if ketamine's use in chronic pain is a lot more controversial, I would say, in general, because it only works for a fixed amount of time generally, and people need kind of longer longer infusions, which then can make people vulnerable to ketamine toxicities, namely things like memory impairment, depression, so actually if you use ketamine too much, you can become depressed, and then also things like bladder issues. Um, which can really which can really cause bad issues in some individuals. But from a pain standpoint, ketamine works really well. It's an excellent tool to put in your toolbox as a clinician. And everybody on med surge in the ICU need to be thinking about adding ketamine on. I work at several hospitals and the amount of pushback I get for putting someone on a low dose of ketamine is insane. They say, oh, that's not something we do on med surge. Oh, we recommend a morphine PCA. Oh, put them on, just give them a higher dose of Dilaudid. Guys, opiates are much more dangerous on med surge than low-dose ketamine. Period. If you're slugging someone with a medication that produces respiratory depression, eventually they will stop breathing. If they stop breathing on med surge and you're not monitoring them, they could die. You would look really really bad if that happened. Do yourself a favor, use an opioid sparing medication like ketamine at low doses and it'll take your practice to the next level. Usually what I'm doing as an inpatient is I'm putting I'm starting people on 0.1 milligrams per kilogram per hour of ketamine and I'm titrating by 0.1 milligrams per kilogram every 30 minutes up to a maximum dose of 0.4 milligrams per kilogram per hour. I'm leaving them on this typically for about one to two days, and it works wonders. I promise. I promise it does. A big question that comes up with ketamine, low-dose pain, is, is what kind of monitoring do we need? Well, as we'll talk about in a little bit, ketamine can cause some vital sign abnormalities. Um, usually things like mildly elevated heart rate and blood pressure, but generally those are very mild. I've worked at lots of different hospitals. At one of the hospitals I worked at, we did kind of a study. And we put the first 500 people we treated with low-dose ketamine on telemetry. Zero events. Zero events. And following that, we stopped even putting our med surge people that were on low-dose ketamine on telemetry. I think it's totally fair if you want to monitor people who are getting ketamine. In my outpatient clinic, I always put people on continuous monitoring for the first dose of ketamine just because you know first time you get any medicine weird stuff can happen but if they tolerate the first dose well and they're not undergoing major dose changes I'm just doing spot vital signs so that's kind of uh, that's kind of my theory on model or on um, monitoring at these low doses some of the more common side effects I see at low doses are just a general feeling like people are in the clouds. They say, oh man, I felt a little uh, high or something. I felt like a little woodstocky or something. Some people like that and some people don't. If they don't like it, turn down the dose a little bit. If they like it, 
Let it ride. Nothing wrong with that. That's not hurting them. Now, those are kind of the main low-dose things for ketamine. I want to swing back again to the mental health stuff and just highlight the suicidal ideation treatment. We have no other drug that I'm aware of that can rapidly and in a sustained manner, meaning over days to even a week, reverse suicidal ideation. In general, our options for people who are acutely suicidal are horrible. Committing someone to inpatient mental health treatment so often doesn't help them. Depending on the facility, it can even make things worse. Being around a bunch of other crazy people in a locked up area, what part of that is conducive to health? People, we've got a tool. You want to talk about danger, suicide is dangerous. If you're scared of ketamine, this is a great place to give it a try and because are you really going to make things that much worse? I promise you, in, admit that, that medical patient that's, su that's suicidal. Maybe they took other pills or for whatever reason you're admitting them to the hospital, they're suicidal. Give them that dose of ketamine. Give them a 0 0.4 milligram per kilogram one-time IM dose of ketamine or give them 0 0.5 milligrams per kilogram over an hour via IV infusion. I promise you, you'll see amazing results. People, start doing this. We have no other good options for this. I've told multiple people, I did a LinkedIn thing. I said, if someone's suicidal and I'm in clinic and you don't think, you're not worried they're going to like, you know, go out of the clinic and shoot themselves, send them to me. I'll treat them for free if need be. This stuff matters for me. Suicide's near and dear to my heart. I've had relatives do this. It's often a rash decision. Help your patients. Use a medicine we know works. Learn new things. This whole pushback with ketamine has just been really frustrating to me because we have all these crummy medicines in our toolbox and a lot of them are very dangerous and people like them just because they're used to them. Hydromorphone or Dilaudid is my pet peeve. Everyone is fine with just giving people more and more doses of that and, and they throw up a fit with ketamine. Okay, so that's the low-dose world. Let's get into higher-dose ketamine. As you give people higher and higher doses of ketamine, they are going to progressively dissociate. Their senses are going to be separated from their bodies. Eventually, they will go to sleep. When this separation is rapid, um, the, the going to sleep part is usually not um, worrisome to people. It tends to work pretty quickly if you give them a good enough dose. However, if you do this slowly or kind of catch them at a midpoint, it can be alarming to people. They can be scared. If they're at a point where they can still remember things, but they're fully dissociated from their senses and out of their body, that can be very alarming. So be careful about that. Give people enough. One great use for a dissociative use of ketamine is in the emergency department or other clinical setting when you've got a patient who is becoming very dangerous to themselves or to staff. This is a patient you need to put down quickly or they're going to they're going to hurt somebody or themselves. In a higher dose of ketamine, say intramuscular, 5 milligrams per kilogram is a great start. 
I talk about in my blog post, I, I, it's a ketamine in space post, because I think ketamine's got so many great uses. It's an excellent low-resource medication. And if you've got somebody on a spaceship who gets hypoxic and all of a sudden goes crazy and they're a danger, get the ketamine on board. <laughs> it will uh, save the rest of the ship. By that same token, it will save the rest of your emergency department, your ICU, or your med surge unit. This is a great medication. We're kind of talking about using it in the same way as haloperidol. It works awesome. The next use of ketamine is as an anesthetic to literally put somebody to sleep. This could be in order to do surgery on them. This could be in order to induce somebody that you don't that you need to have stable vital signs so that they can be innovated. For somebody that needs to be in the ICU, this could be this could be used for maintenance of sedation. I don't see this very commonly, but people do it and it does work. And it's something to think about if there's other issues with the other medications you have available for sedation. The great part about ketamine, as stated before, is that it really doesn't cause respiratory depression. Now, when you give somebody a big slug, you can see some transient apnea. They can stop breathing breathing for a second, but almost always they start breathing again. And for that reason, it is an awesome drug when you've got limited resources to manage airway. If you're on that spaceship and you need to do a C-section, this is going to be your drug. If you're on a mission in Africa and you've got to do some big procedure and somebody's got to be put down for it, this is going to be your go-to drug. Ketamine is an excellent low-resource anesthetic, but it's also an excellent uh, resource-rich anesthetic as well. So think about using it. It's great for your ICU patients. You can use it um, to basically put someone to sleep for multiple different um, intubation strategies. And you can also use it for maintenance of sedation if you need to keep people asleep. Now, that being said, I think the, uh, the no sedation ICUs are the best call. But sometimes people do need to be asleep, and this is, this is not a bad option for it. Ketamine also does a few other things, um, and as time goes on, I'm sure more things will be discovered because it's a big-time utility player. But one thing is as a, um, a seizure medication, if somebody is in status epilepticus, there's been a lot of clinical reports of giving them a high dose of ketamine to break that. Generally, uh, the conventional wisdom is eventually you get to propofol, which is another anesthetic medication, and you basically give them propofol, and then because propofol makes them stop breathing, you have to then intubate them. Ketamine might be an alternative for this. I need to see probably some more information, probably some more real studies regarding this, but something to think about and maybe a lot safer option in a resource-limited setting like a rural clinic if you've got somebody in status epilepticus. If you could just put them down with ketamine rather than having to worry about propofol, if you're not, say, the, most, um, the best person with airway, this could be a good call for you. Another thing ketamine does is it relaxes uh, respiratory smooth muscle. And for this reason, it, it may have a role in things like asthma exacerbations, particularly if you need to put that person to sleep for whatever reason. Now, I know it's always a, r a really bad call and you want to avoid intubation in these patients at any cost, but if you're going to use an agent, maybe pick something that's going to help relax those smooth bronchial muscles and help with breathing. 
Ketamine does a lot of stuff. We talked about ketamine's use in mental health at low doses, depression, OCD, suicidal ideation, anxiety, and you could probably could throw in a lot of other mental health things in that, that grab bag. Just an aside, you do have to be a little bit careful with ketamine in mental health in certain circumstances. We'll talk more about this and side effects and problems in the next episode, but it definitely can be habit-forming, and so people with a big history of addiction, you're going to want to be careful about starting them on this medication. In bipolar depression, um, it certainly could precipitate mania, and so you're going to want to use a little bit of caution in that, that population. And then finally, in schizophrenia, especially PCP, but also ketamine, have been shown to exacerbate uh, many of the symptoms of, of schizophrenia. And these exacerbations can go on for weeks. So you want to be real careful in those populations, particularly in your patients who have addiction issues and your patients with schizophrenia. Now, by the same, or by kind of a different side, ketamine's also kind of being looked at for, for an addiction treatment for things like cocaine and, and opiates. And so it, it's tough. It's tough, people. Uh, we've got a double-edged sword on our hands, but with a good clinician, this can be used in a really good way. So mental health, think about low-dose ketamine. Pain, think about low-dose ketamine. In the acute pain setting, Absolutely works amazing wonders, should be one of your first go-tos. In chronic pain, this works. This gives people respite. I think there's some question as to the safety of long-term outpatient ketamine use, and I think those concerns are very, very valid. But I think we need to tease them out. I think we need to study them. We need to learn more. At higher doses, ketamine can be used to put down that agitated patient can also be used as an anesthetic for surgery. Finally, in the ICU, comes in handy. It can be a great induction agent for a number of different intubation strategies or even just to calm people down while you try and get them respirating redder on a, on a non-invasive assist like a BiPAP machine. And it also can be used for maintenance of sedation for your patients that need to be kept asleep for some reason. So just a lot of different awesome clinical properties. And for that reason, I think ketamine is a must-have in resource-limited settings. If you are leading an expedition as the medical director and you've been adequately trained, I'd have some ketamine with you. If you are building a medical kit to take to Mars, I'd put some ketamine in there. If you're in a resource-limited clinic in a rural area, I'd become familiar with the use of ketamine. I would add it to your toolbox. It will pay dividends for you for years to come. So that was a pretty long part two on ketamine. We kind of dived into the treatments. I'm pretty passionate about all these uses. And one of the really cool things about my job is that I to use ketamine in all these different settings. Everything I've said to you in this podcast, I've used ketamine for. There are very few doctors that can say that. And if you're interested in rural medicine, 
hit me up because that's the name of the game a utility player the doctor version of ketamine someone who can cover a small ICU take care of med surge take care of kids treat people in the outpatient setting okay that's ketamine part two we're gonna have to pick this back up with part three where we talk about the actual clinical effects the adverse effects and then I think we'll probably be able to call it good. Oh yeah, we're going to also talk about the treat, how to treat adverse effects of ketamine. So join us next time for part three of ketamine. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Full Scope Podcast. You can find a lecture summary, key points, and any references on our website, fullscope.org. Additionally, this is the official podcast of Wonder Medicine PLLC, a for-profit medical clinic located in Boise, Idaho. As Carly and I own the clinic and draw revenue from it, we thought we should uh, d disclose it as a conflict of interest. Disclaimer alert! It's a trap! The Full Scope podcast was designed and created for educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or provide clinical knowledge specific to the care of any actual patient or population of patients. If you are in need of medical advice or treatment, contact a physician. The views and opinions portrayed on Full Scope are Dr. Brandenburg's. They do not represent the views or opinions of Wander Medicine Clinic, any of the academic institutions mentioned on the Full Scope podcast or website, or any of the hospitals which Dr. Brandenburg has or currently works at.